I don't have much money, but boy, if I did, I'd buy a big house where we both could live. If I was a sculptor, but then again, no, <laughs> or a man who makes potions in. Traveling show, oh I, I know it's not much, but it's the best I can do. My gift is my soul, and this one's for you. And you can tell everybody this is your song. Maybe quite simple, but now that it's done, I hope you don't mind. I hope you don't mind that I put down in words how wonderful life is while you're in the world. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios. This week on Broadway for Sunday, September fifteenth, two thousand and nineteen. My name is James Marino, and on the broadcast today we have Jenna Tessa Fox and Peter Felicia. Jenna is a theater writer and reviewer whose articles have appeared at Time Out, Playbill, Broadway World, and New York Theater Guide. She also has her own podcast, Spotlight, on the Broadway Radio Network. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning, James. How's it going? Oh, very good. Thank you. Also with us is Peter Felicia. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, James. I want to say something else, too, and that is that um, a couple of weeks ago, Michael Potantio was talking about that musical. I don't even remember the name of it. That was the first Philippine musical. Yeah. Um, and um, I said, you know, I think I saw a musical by a, a Filipino uh, some years ago. So I did a little checking, and I found that Raul S. Manglapolis, who was the Secretary of Foreign Affairs in the Philippines, did indeed write a musical called Manifest Destiny and evening of Yankee Panky, uh, which was produced in 1999. So uh, for the record, he is a native Filipino. Um, and so now you know that that other show was not the first. Okay. <laughs> well, we always love clarification here. Yes, indeed. So that's uh, <laughs> very important. And Peter, you just back from a trip up to Maine. And um, where there was nothing playing, I'm sorry to say, um, you Maine know, state I, I, theater. Uh, well, I, I was in a, a very different part of the state, which is not far from Harrison, where there's a theater called Deer Trees, a beautiful wood structure, which, by the way, uh, the fire department was going to burn as a test oh. for new firemen to see how they could do. And the town uh, said, no, 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 this this place is um, really important. So they do a summer season. And I'm sorry to say I was just too late to be there. But I have been there a few times, and it really is quite a lovely place. I mean, really, to see every stick of wood in place, beautifully done, beautifully varnished, uh, is really something. So we always talk about theaters going under the wrecking ball, but theaters going under um, – <laughs> The fire department's own uh, uh, intention. So luckily it did not happen. Um, but um, they didn't help me this time around with seeing anything. <laughs> well, I mean, September in Maine is not really uh, summer anymore. You know, it's almost three feet of snow up there by now. <laughs> well, the other thing, too, I mean, I am told that this town has 30,000 people in the summer. 
and 5,000 people the rest of the year. So, I mean, that does tell you a, a lot about um, why there's no theater in um, September in Harrison, Maine. So Michael is off for this week and next week. He is traveling through Italy and uh, sending back beautiful photographs uh, of his travels uh, through the European um, South. Um, Very, very jealous. And we'll have to see if Michael sees any theater or perhaps opera. When, uh, yeah, when he gets true. back, yeah, yeah. when he yeah. gets back, um, there was some news on uh, today on Broadway this week, uh, where I talked about the future of Broadway radio and the possibility that we were going to wrap up a show, uh, sort of pr- post a provisional closing notice for Broadway radio on December thirty first, twenty nineteen. And uh, you can go back to Today on Broadway and take a listen to that. It was on the Thursday show, I think it was. Uh, I think it was the Thursday show. Uh, We recorded Wednesday night. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Since then, we've gotten so many emails, uh, phone calls, text messages, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram support and things like that, that um, we opened up a Patreon. uh, You can go to the show notes at broadwayradio.com, and there's a link to the Patreon. It's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash broadwayradio. If you would like to support Broadway Radio and keep us going into 2020 and beyond, there's uh, information there as well as updates to what we're trying to achieve and um, all those type of things for Broadway Radio. So patreon.com slash Broadway Radio. Uh, if you would like to support us and find out more information about the future of, of Broadway Radio in your ears. So last week, Michael talked about uh, betrayal at the Jacobs. Uh, this week, Jenna, Peter, and I are going to talk about betrayal. So uh, Peter, why don't you get us started on that? Well, um, I did see the original production of Betrayal in in 1980, and um, what I noticed then was that when they projected the dates on the back wall, they actually used 1977, 1974, 1973. And um, here they used two years earlier, one year earlier, because this is a show uh, very much like that famous Stephen Sondheim, uh, George Firth musical, where things go backwards and um, merrily events do not roll along in this play. Um, it, uh, we find out a lot about these characters as time goes on. I have to say right at the top, I agree with Michael um, that this is the finest production of betrayal I've ever seen. And I've seen five now, um, including that original production, which was terrific, but this one even is better. But uh, here's the thing though. I really believe that this production would have been better served if they had used the dates 1977, 1974, 1973, because you just assume since there's nothing in the playbill and so many playbills now do not tell us time and place. I mean, it's just amazing how that has seemed to have disappeared. I don't know if type costs have gone up or what, but anyway, um, the problem here is that we just naturally assume it's 2019. Now you might say, well, you know, big deal. This is about an affair. I mean, people had affairs in 77. They, they're having affairs in 2019. They're going to have affairs 20, 40, 60 years from now. And then, um, you know, unless, you know, the world ends, uh, we're always going to have people having affairs. The theme of the eternal triangle is a very common one. So why am I making such a point of the fact that um, we should set it in 77? Frankly, there's a part of me that wishes the play were set in 1927. Why? Okay, here we go. Um, 
the um, at one point in the play, we are uh, having an, a meeting with Robert and his best friend. Okay, now they're they're confiding in each other. Now Robert has no idea, none whatsoever, that his best friend Jerry is fooling around with his wife Emma. But that's um, that's what's going on at this point in time. And he says, Robert does, about his wife, I've hit Emma once or twice. And then he admits, it wasn't to defend a principle or from any kind of moral standpoint. I just felt like giving her a good bashing. Well, um, you know, it was it was scary enough in, 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 in um, the early day when uh, Roy Scheider said these lines so matter-of-factly as if they told of an incident of no importance whatsoever. But, I mean, even long before then, that unfortunate slang expression for a sleeveless T-shirt, a wife beater, was damned into justifiable obscurity. So, surely now, in the much welcomed era of Me Too, the the Pinter estate and, and the director, Jamie Lloyd, I, I was sure they were going to excise these lines from the revival, and they're still there. Uh, now, I don't know, maybe Lloyd did say to the estate, um, can we do it? And uh, they declined. I mean, who knows, you know. Um, but the way that Lloyd has directed it suggests that he doesn't approve of it because he has Tom Hiddleston say the lines in almost a whisper. I think if you're beyond Row J, you're not even going to hear it. And frankly, I hope you don't hear it because it's really quite um, terrible to uh, have this. I mean... Uh, I mean, as I say, if it were in 77, it would be a little, do we say better? I mean, I don't know how we can. Um, I don't think that hitting a a wife in the 70s should have been excused, or even in 70 BC, it should have been excused. But if the lines had to be uh, retained, and again, did they? Uh, At least the audience could rationalize and say, well, thank God that isn't happening today as much i mean which i hope uh that's the case now i know saying that this is the best production of betrayal i've ever seen and then following it up with this diatribe on on this line um may seem unfair but um but it does have to be noted um so it really is quite a fine production and what's amazing is um there's really no set to speak of there's uh, i mean there's no set at all not even to speak of um you basically see two chairs later on what be you get a table that comes out um and uh, but there's not much more than that and yet one of the things i love about directors uh is when they um put the action very close to the lip of the stage and uh lloyd does that so uh the two usually two people are talking and um and we see them close up sitting in those chairs or standing around those chairs while the other person is in the background we're not sure if the person is lurking we're not sure if the person is paying attention uh it seems that the the other person the odd man out or odd woman out uh is is not paying attention to what's going on and is just in his or her own little world uh which is fine because we don't know what's going on um that person doesn't know what's going on that's the whole point of that so um we are dealing with betrayal in every sense not only is there a betrayal in the marriage but uh people try to trap each other by um asking questions to answers they already know 
They want to see what the person is going to say, how much the person will lie when confronted with what seems to be just a, a normal question, you know, a matter of fact question. But there's a lot of stuff in that question. And um, it, while it seems like an innocent question, it is hardly that. So um, there's, there's a wonderful moment where um, Robert goes fish on a fishing expedition. In fact, we could even call it a deep sea fishing expedition um, to see what indeed uh, Jerry's um, uh, what Emma is going to say. They're they're in Italy. He and Emma are in Italy. It's a vacation. They're, they're, in fact, they're going to go to the place where they fell in love. Um, and now, of course, it's going to be very different because um, Robert has a feeling he knows what's going on. Um, what happens is that Robert is passing by the front desk and the um, desk clerk says, oh, sir, oh, signore, <laughs> there's a letter for your wife and uh, why don't you take it up? And he can tell from the uh, handwriting that it's Jerry's. Now, what's Jerry doing writing a letter to his wife? Why is that happening? So he says, um, no, my wife will pick that up later. And um, what happens is indeed she does. And of course, he's waiting for her to say, oh, I got a letter from Jerry. He sends his love, you know, that type of thing. Well, she doesn't. And that makes him more and more suspicious as to what's going on. Why is he writing his wife? So, um, so he tells her of the incident, tells her that uh, the desk clerk of them the letter. And now, of course, she's faced with the dilemma. Oh, he knows I got the letter from Jerry. Uh-oh. And Pinter is famous for his pauses. Um, there was much made of this when Pinter had his real Vogue in, uh, on Broadway in the 60s, that um, the pause, I mean, sometimes it drove people crazy. It may drive you to a different type of craziness here. You, you don't even know if you're going to be able to stand it because, indeed, the, the pressure is so great. You're wondering what Emma is going to say during that pause. And Robert is content to wait. It's fine with him. He will wait. Um, and, uh, whoa, what is she finally going to tell him, if anything? Um, is she going to simply say that uh, he wrote her a letter to say, hope all is well, but why wouldn't he write it to um, <laughs> to Robert, too? I will say that I do have a question. I'm not sure that um, a man would write a letter um, to uh, his mistress, shall we say, um, when he knows that her husband is going to be with her. So I will question that. But um, anyway, uh, if you buy that premise, it's a phenomenal scene. That's what's really great about the Pinter pauses in this show, that indeed um, they're not just there <laughs> because people don't feel like speaking. There's a real reason why they're pausing. They are racking their brains, wondering what they are going to say next. So I mentioned Tom Hiddleston, uh, who plays Robert. Terrific. But so is Charlie Cox um, as Jerry, um, especially when he tries to look innocent. Um, and Zawe Ashton, her first name is Z-A-W-E. I guess it's Zawe. Um, Ashton uh, is Emma, and um, she is wonderful with those pauses, and she has a very distinctive look. You can really see why um, men would fall in love with her and stay in love with her, because Robert still uh, wants his wife, um, and we'll see. Um, well, we won't see whether or not <laughs> how it works out, but um, but we can imagine how it's going to work out. By the way, 
you know, that famous expression, there are no small parts, only small actors, which I know is harder to defend now in high school when the leads get cheek mics and the ensemble and smaller roles don't. But anyway, in this play, you have a waiter who comes in and um, serves both uh, Robert and Jerry. It was going to be yet another confrontation about this issue. And this actor, Eddie Arnold, has, I don't know, maybe 16 lines, if that, you know, and makes the most of them. It really gets a great deal of laughter from the audience. Now, true, um, at this point in time, we, we would like some comic relief. and But this Eddie Arnold um, delivers it. You know, um, uh, many listeners may know that um, I had the Theatre World Awards, which gives out prizes to people who are making their Broadway or off-Broadway debut. And um, of course, there are going to be contenders here with um, Zawa Ashton, Charlie Cox, and Tom Hiddleston, who are all making their Broadway debuts. But so is Eddie Arnold as the waiter. So we'll see what happens if my six uh, colleagues, um, or to quote the Wizard of Oz, my six brother wizards, um, all agree that Eddie Arnold uh, deserves a prize even for his short stage time. So um, really, uh, I think this is one of the best productions, not only of Betrayal, but of Harold Pinter that I've ever seen. So um, simple, not simplistic, there is a difference, and, uh, and quite, quite potent. Okay. Jenna, what did you think about uh, Betrayal? Yeah, I'm with Michael and Peter. This is the best production of this play that I've seen, but I've only ever seen two productions, so take that with a grain of salt. Uh, and I completely agree with you, Peter. The pinter pauses are just wonderfully powerful. They're excruciating. Mm. Uh, Jamie Lloyd just builds up the tension so high and and just lets it sit there. I mean, we're all on the edge of our seats. And I, I could imagine we were talking about the uh, the cell phone going off uh, at one performance. I think Michael was discussing that uh, last week. Uh, how could a cell phone just destroy all that intensity? Um, it was amazing just seeing an entire audience of, what, a thousand-odd people in complete silence on the edges of our seats waiting to hear what are they going to say next. Um, it, Jamie Lloyd uh, does some wonderful staging with the show. I really loved having all three leads on stage for pretty much the entire play. There are only a couple of moments when any one of them gets a break and steps off. We can see the balances of power shifting from moment to moment, depending on who knows what, who's hearing what, who's aware, uh, who's unaware. Uh, the triangle is always visible. We can see how much each pair's words hurt the third person. Um, Michael had said the third person didn't react. And Peter, you said that it seemed like they sort of did, if I heard you correctly. Um I, it seemed also to me, I agree with you, it seemed like they did ever so slightly. Sometimes it was just closing the eyes, exhaling. It was not stealing the energy, but it did feel like a reaction. When I would glance up, you could see how they felt. And I thought that worked beautifully. We could see how much pain each pair was causing the third. And it adds significantly to the tension and the power of the piece. Um, I agree with you. The three leads are wonderful. They they play the subtext of their characters uh, just beautifully. I'm familiar with Tom Hiddleston and Charlie Cox from their work on TV and film. Uh, they have wonderful stage presence. Hiddleston has a wonderful intensity. Even when the focus of the scene isn't on him, even when Emma and Jerry are talking in that uh, opening scene, just looking at him upstage being affected by their words is is wonderfully powerful. Um, 
Cox is somewhat more lighthearted. You can see why Emma is drawn to him. You can see why she would be attracted to someone who's not quite as intense and is has lets his guard down a little bit more. Uh, I'm not as familiar with Zoe Ashton's work, but she just gives a beautiful performance, wonderfully understated. And she has genuine chemistry with both men. It's, it's wonderful. You can see her love for both of them, which makes the piece that much more compelling. And, uh, and yes, I completely agree with you. Eddie Arnold does a wonderful job in his small part. He is hilarious. And more specifically, he really breaks the tension in a really intense Mm -hmm. moment and lets it start building up again. I think without him to break that tension, that scene would just become unbearable. And it's well staged. Obviously, Pinter, I think, wrote that moment to do just that. But his performance on the role, letting the audience laugh, letting us just breathe again in such an intense scene really works beautifully. He handles that very well. Um, And and discussing about the years not being mentioned, that was something that jumped out at me as well. And I was trying to remember if the time setting was mentioned in uh, the last production uh, from a couple of years ago. Uh, because the actors never leave the stage, they don't change their costumes very much, and they certainly don't change their hairstyles. So it, it makes the piece somewhat timeless and universal. Uh, though I do remember in the last production, I think the costumes did shift from the 70s to the 60s. Uh, by letting the piece be universal, I mean, it seems to take place today. Um, and I don't think the script changes any words, as far as I can tell. Um it gives it a sort of sense of contemporary views on relationships and sexuality, on polyamorous people coming out, as it were, and that people can love more than one person at a time. And I thought it, without changing any dialogue from decades ago, it gives a very interesting take on what is becoming a more common contemporary phenomenon. Although I certainly agree with you about the line about uh, hitting Emma. Uh, mm-hmm. It does it definitely jumps out, especially in a modern setting. It's easier to excuse when you say, well, that was then. Um, But I will say it does work for the characters. Uh, I don't know if you've watched uh, Big Little Lies on TV, Um, but that show deals with an abusive relationship and in a very contemporary time and characters that stay together through abuse and Mm -hmm. why they want to stay together, even when there is abuse. That is a Mm -hmm. thing regrettably that definitely happens uh today it is not a historic uh it is not a historic situation um although i i don't know if pinter this is a whole other can of worms to open i don't know how much pinter wanted us to like these characters and i don't know if he put that line in to make us specifically dislike robert um because I think that line comes to, that line comes towards the end of the story, but the beginning of the play. So, <laughs> it, so it gives um, it gives an interesting take on him, their relationship, what their relationship is like, and you know, is it regularly abusive? Is it you know, something where they've talked through it and they've decided to continue? I, it raises some fascinating perspectives on the characters and whether what we are supposed to feel for them. Um, and, and I agree. It makes the characters and their relationships very complex and very layered. 
and and but it did jump out at me as well. So thank you for bringing that up. I, I want to give a big shout out to John Clark, uh, who's the show's lighting designer. Uh, the lights, and I don't think this has been mentioned before, are mostly LEDs above the stage, which cast a rather harsh glare mm-hmm. when they are used down on the actors, but also cast uh, shadows on their faces. That's one reason why overhead lighting has to be used very carefully. Usually it's on an angle. This is not. These lights are straight down so that the the a person's face will cast shadows on itself when the light comes straight down. And that creates a really interesting look when their faces are shadowed in that way. Uh, but more often... Uh, Clark uses lights from the first uh, mezzanine shining straight out onto the actors so their faces are in full light. But this also casts really stark shadows on the back wall, back wall of Sutra Gilmore's set that we've all discussed is very minimalist, um, barely there. Uh, and that creates... We're not only seeing the characters, we're seeing their inverse. We see, and there were a couple points where I was wondering, are those the actual shadows? Or is that some kind of projection? Because I thought a couple times the shadows moved when the actors didn't. And I was glancing back at the shadows quite a few times. It was a great effect to see the people and then their inverse so bold right there on this very light set. Um, And Gilmore's set is very effective. It forces the audience to focus on the language and the emotion rather than admiring, oh, look at the chandelier. Um, It really worked nicely. And I loved, I loved the revolving stage that goes in two different directions. So it can create some spectacular visuals, characters standing completely still, move towards and away from one another. It's a beautiful visual take that just lets us see the characters and their relationships without using a word. Uh, And I really hope both the lighting and the sets will be remembered come award time because they really added such a spectacular amount to the story. Uh, This is a gorgeous, gorgeous production. I hope it does well. I hope it extends. And I'm really grateful that I got to see it. My thoughts on uh, Betrayal are that uh, I um, in agreement with everything that Peter, Michael, and, and Jenna have said uh, already. Uh, this, this was a transforming, amazing evening for me. And I would love, uh, I hope that this gets recorded in some way, because this is the type of thing that yes. I want. I want to take and hand to somebody who... Uh, feels as though that we need King Kong size technology to make theater profitable. You know, everybody says, oh, everybody's coming, you know, in order for uh, a Broadway play to, to play to audiences and have them engage, they have to have huge amounts of technology and, and sets and costumes and everything. And this was literally a gray box. Uh, uh, yeah, you probably spent more to renovate your basement, James, than um, they did on the set, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, and this was about the words. This yes. was about the silence. This was about the look that one actor gave another. This had nothing to do with spending a tremendous amount of money on on things. And I loved it. And I hope everybody gets a chance to see it. I, I was, um, I'm not going to spoil the thing that they have asked us not to spoil, but I think it was ridiculous for them to ask this of us. 
Um, and so I'm going to be obsequious about it on purpose <laughs> because I, I want to respect their wishes. But I, I felt that that was a gimmick that they didn't need to – they didn't need – they didn't need to ask us not to spoil it obviously they needed to do the thing that they did in the production but they didn't need to make it a a thing i this production is far greater than that gimmick agreed and uh and now everybody has to go see the show. It is so wonderful. It is so good. And, and you know, whether you've seen Pinter or not, whether you're a fan of Pinter or not, this this is a transforming show and, and you must see it. So uh, that is Betrayal uh, at the Jacobs. It's playing through December 8th right now. I hope it extends. If it can extend, I, I yes. don't really know anything about that, if mm. it's able to or not. But uh, this, this was a really wonderful uh, production that's come over from the West End. All right. Next up, Peter, on your way to or fro, I'm not sure which it was, mm. to Maine, you got mm. to the Huntington Theatre Company's production of The Purists, which is planned on the south end of Boston mm -hmm. uh, at the Calderwood Pavilion, which right. is the uh, theater also run by Huntington Theater Company. Mm -hmm. So tell us about this uh, play, which is directed by Billy Porter. Yeah, yeah, and uh, most significantly written by Dan McCabe. Let's give him credit, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I, you know, street scene has been on my mind um, the last few weeks because Broadway HD is uh, showing the um, opera street scene by Kurt Vile and uh, Langston Hughes and um, also by Alma Rice, who wrote the original play, the one appeal of surprise. And uh, street scene takes out... In, uh, takes place in front of an apartment building and uh, you see the various things that are going on on the street and what's going on inside you don't see you're told about it but you don't see it okay now clint ramos has designed a set that street scene could almost be played on except with one uh, big uh, difference and that is we do see into one apartment one apartment and only one apartment and that one apartment um is occupied by uh, Jerry Brinsler. And Jerry Brinsler is a musical theater enthusiast. Um, so he has framed playbills of MAME, a little night music. He has a window card for George M. Um, and of course, biggest of all, um, a, a genuine um, poster sized. <sighs> need I tell you, of <laughs> follies. So this is a real, um, as we uh, say in the trade, show freak. And um, he certainly, certainly appreciates the fact that he has all these recordings. Uh, he even still has LPs around. You see uh, the LP for Evita. Uh, you see the LP for Hello, Dolly. Uh, I didn't even see any CDs. I mean, so he really is old world. He's no kid. Um, I dare say he saw Follies in the original production. Uh, he's old enough to have done so. So this is an older man. Not, not a senior citizen, perhaps, but an older man. Okay, fine. So you can imagine how he feels in this neighborhood 
which uh, the playbill says Sunnyside, Queens. Um, the There's a construction going on on the left side of the, of the, the set where, um, indeed, it says Long Island City. Does anybody know if Sunnyside and Long Island City are exactly the same? Um, I got the I don't think so. Right. Yeah, anyway, but it does say Long Island, but the playbill says Sunnyside. Anyway, so... Um, Walking along the streets, um, there are a lot of um, African-Americans with boomboxes, and they're not playing Getting to Know You or anything from Hello, Dolly. Um, though at one point we do hear the rap version of It's the Hard Knock Life, and that brings these people together for a few seconds. That's what happens in this play. The two rappers um, who uh, certainly hang out on the street are um, are diametrically opposed musically to, of course, Jerry. And yet the play does manage every now and then to bring them together on an issue or two. Now, um, Jerry is uh, gay and uh, makes no bones about it. And of course the two rappers don't want to hear this. One um, is, is accused of being homophobic by Val, a girl in the neighborhood, um, uh, who um, has earrings as big as donuts. And uh, she says, you know, I really do think, I really believe that um, Lamont, um, one of the rappers, is a homophobe. And I really believe that Mr. Bugs, B-U-G-Z, is secretly gay. And we'll see if uh, Val is on the right track as time goes on. There's also um, a young, uh, she's Puerto Rican, as she says, and um, a young one white woman comes on the scene because she knows Jerry, and Jerry's, um, she has begged Jerry to introduce her to Lamont. Why? Because Lamont has been a very successful rapper. And that's kind of interesting to us because we assume a guy standing out in front of a building uh, a lot is not a successful rapper, that um, he may very well be an amateur. Mr. Bugs was a successful rapper, too, but um, he's uh, had some problems recently because, indeed, he's been accused of being gay. And that doesn't sit well with a lot of people um, who had been fans of his. So... But Nancy, the white girl, definitely wants to meet uh, Lamont. And the thing is, Lamont is very reluctant to meet her because she comes from Scarsdale, which is a very different type of part of the world than, um, than his part of the world. And she desperately wants to be a rapper. Now, I'll, I will admit that a lot of the message of the play sounds a little trite. Uh, essentially, what it comes down to is you can't expect a white woman to rap as well as a black guy. Um, so uh, I do think that's a, a bit trite. But it's it's what really comes into play here is how much these characters have in common, even though they may not really realize it. Um, Jerry, in fact, as well as Mr. Bugs, um, have mothers who have Alzheimer's. And uh, so that brings them together a little bit. Um, and it's really nice to see how devoted Mr. Bugs is to his mother. I and mean, she's always on his mind. And while somebody says, well, you're out here, you're not by your bedside every second. The fact remains that we can tell that he really, really cares about his mother. It's wonderful, too, that the um, African-Americans are, are not portrayed simply by jive talk. Um, they have quite a good vocabulary. And um, 
um, believably so. And I thought that was very effective as well. So um, while every now and then you might say, mm, yeah, we know that um, there is this issue about whites can't rap as well as blacks, or at least that's a common perception, whether it's to an artist, another issue. Um, it's the commonality among the three people. Um, the main characters that really gives this play its power and, and even its dignity. And while there is many a laugh out loud moment, there's a point where the audience moaned. All right, why? Well, Nancy likes to play a game with Jerry where she, uh, and he doesn't want to play it, but um, her point is, um, who would you eliminate from your life if you had to? All right, Jerome Kern, Richard Rogers. George Gershwin or Stephen Sondheim. And he agonizes over the decision. And finally, he comes out with George Gershwin. And the audience really took it. Oh, I mean, it was very interesting. There were so many Gershwin fans in that audience. Uh, it is a, a terrible conundrum. You know, who would you drop of those four? But nevertheless, I suspect no matter who he chose, um, that indeed the audience might have moaned in surprise, but it really almost sounded like the sound of a wounded animal, um, the way that they res responded to that. And um, I have a feeling that uh, when uh, Dan McCabe wrote this play, that he didn't anticipate that he would get such a reaction out of that. But I'm sure he expected to get many a reaction out of many other situations in the play, and he certainly gets that too. So that's The Purist, which runs uh, through October 6th, I think it is, and um, at this wonderful little complex that um, really has turned out to be a destination in the city because a lot of theater companies play there. And in fact, uh, the day before, there was a wonderful expo of Boston theaters uh, in in another space in the um, uh, complex, and um, so many of the other theater companies in Boston or around Boston, even Trinity from Providence was there, um, purveying their wares. Um, new rep in uh, Watertown was there as well, a, a nice uh, company that I've had good times at. So uh, I really do believe that um, the place was packed on a Friday night. I, I do believe this is a successful venue. And by the way, this Calderwood Pavilion Theater in which the purist is taking place is hardly a hole in the wall. This is not a black box. This is a handsome theater with a balcony, beautiful burnished wood, et cetera, et cetera. Amazingly comfortable seats. You're not going to be sitting in folding chairs. So um, it, it's a it's a fine second space for Huntington. Yeah, most theaters that have second spaces have them right next door in the building, and this one is far away. But um, as that old commercial used to say, it's worth the trip. So the uh, Boston Fire Department didn't try to burn this one down? <laughs> no, I don't, I, I don't think they will. I'm telling you, the, the area was packed. Um, it, it's, it really has become a destination. Of course, there are restaurants there, too. But it was so wonderful to see um, the plaza in front of the theater so filled with people uh, coming into the theater. There was a long line waiting to get into the box office, which is always wonderful to see. And um, uh, the theater was full on a Friday night, which was uh, really nice to see, too. So um, they've made a success of it there. I mean, this was a part of, uh, as you say, the south end of Boston um, had, has in its time had a lot of distressed neighborhood. And this was a distressed neighborhood. But once again, you know, theater saves the neighborhood. And this is what's happening there. Are there uh, multiple spaces in this building for theater? Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I um, speakeasy. Um, I don't know if they're still there, but they uh, they certainly were there. I saw the Lacusa Wild Party there. Um, I saw um, the Adding Machine there, uh-huh. and uh, uh, there's a company called the Zeitgeist. I don't know if it's still around, but a few years ago, did the Boys from the Band uh, in another space there too. So um, yeah, I think there, there may be three or four, but um, it, it's very nice that uh, there's a handsome commodious theater among them. So this is um, the real top. I'd never been in it before. I'd been in the smaller spaces, ironically enough, but I hadn't been in the bigger one. And I wasn't prepared to see something as grandiose as this one turned out to be. But it was really nice to see that. The reason that I was asking about multiple theaters is because uh, when I looked it up, uh, it seems that this afternoon they have Choir Boy playing. Then at the evening they have The Purists. And on Monday they have Jitney. So I was like, wow, are they doing huge turnovers in such a short period of time? Or did they have multiple uh, yeah, multiple venues there? But it, uh, they have a, a nice photo. I have not been there, but I'm looking at a photo of the outside of it. It looks very nice. Huntington Theatre Company uh, lists this as Calderwood Pavilion at the BCA. And I wasn't sure what BCA is, but I'm seeing here it's the Boston Center for the Arts. So, so that's the makes, official name yeah. of the place. Okay, good. So great. Uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. even though I disagree with their football and baseball and basketball and hockey teams. <laughs> My, uh, clean sweep. <laughs> Do they have a major league soccer team that you don't like either? Uh, you know? <laughs> I, I, I'm unsure of that so far, but I, I've noticed all my uh, Boston Red Sox fans are quickly talking about the Patriots these days, you know, as, as the Yankees uh, uh, approach the sweeping of the American League. Uh, uh, well, the American League East, James. Well, I, I well I'm that, saying uh, in, in, in wins, you know, they yeah. are they're leading the American League in wins right now. Yeah, and Boston's absolutely. not even in the wild card. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, in fact, they were mathematically eliminated yeah. while I was up there. So uh, July. <laughs> anyway, this is the theater podcast. Let's get back to theater. OK, so next up, uh, Jenna, you got a chance to see Darren Brown's Secret at the Court Theater. Uh, so tell us, uh, did let us in on the secret. Did you like it? No. No, I won't let you in on the secret. That's the entire <laughs> point. You don't tell secrets. Come on, James. Honestly. <laughs> is it a secret garden? <laughs> no. <it's, laughs> oh, that would kind of be fun, wouldn't it? Get him into yeah. the secret. Ooh. Now I want to see was that. Was it Wick? It, oh, it was uh-huh. very Wick. I it was very wicked. It was wait that was not Manchester, <laughs> Yorkshire accent. Uh, yeah, no. Let's, <laughs> oh, that was terrible, wasn't it? That was embarrassing. Not Pretend that all. never happened. Uh, so yeah, illusionist and uh, mentalist Darren Brown uh, won a drama desk a couple of years ago for the off Broadway run of the show, and now he's brought it to Broadway for a limited run. I think this is his Broadway debut. I don't believe he's ever done a Broadway show before. Um, The show is just as wonderful as it was downtown. Uh, It's written by Brown, collaborating with Andy Nyman and uh, Andrew O'Connor. Hold on one second. Did I get those names right? Uh, Yes, Andy Nyman and Andrew O'Connor. Okay, just checking. Uh, They also direct the piece. And uh, I really want to highlight their work in turning a magic show into a proper narrative. Uh, uh, I want to – how do I say this? I was reminded during the show of a, uh, a comment Penn Gillette made uh, a couple years back in uh, Penn and Teller's last Broadway outing. He said, uh, you're wondering how he does this, but you should be wondering why he does it. 
uh, Brown uses his illusions to examine the stories and the fictions that people tell themselves. And uh, he begins the show emphasizing he's going to lie to us throughout the show, but at least he will be honest about lying. And this lays the groundwork for the concept of the show that the stories we tell ourselves, the stories we tell about ourselves may be a lie or maybe our secrets don't matter in the long run. But they have an effect. They they affect who we are. They affect what we do. And they affect, in the long run, what other people do. Um, it really adds an emotional resonance to the piece that makes it uh, much more emotional than you'd expect a magic show to be. It was on par with uh, In and of Itself, which ran on Broadway right around the same time. This was running off Broadway. And I don't want to make it sound like this is very heavy emotional stuff. Brown is genuinely funny. Uh, there are a lot of laughs in the show. And even if you're not into magic, you can enjoy the show just for the comedy and Brown's wonderful delivery. He interacts with the audience beautifully and even gets some emotional reactions from them as they help him perform his tricks. The show runs a full two and a half hours, but it moves so fast. There is not a moment that lags, and this says an awful lot about Brown's skill as an entertainer and Nyman and O'Connor's script and direction. Uh, there's really not too much I can say about the tricks sure. that Brown performs. Yeah, so I can't say an awful lot, but the stories that he tells while he performs the tricks or the stories that he gets from the audience are the real heart of the show. Uh, Takeshi Kata's set, Ben Stanton's lighting, they add to the atmosphere beautifully. And um, again, I'm afraid to say too much about them because that would mm. spoil things. Yeah. Jill B. C. Dubov's sound design also helps the show in a lot of ways that I can't talk about. Uh, Brown has a lot of specials on Netflix and which he discusses the art of mentalism. And I really encourage people to watch those shows get a taste of what he does he is a wonderful performer this is the third time i've seen secret i saw it twice off broadway and was very excited to go back you can appreciate a lot more of the art and artistry of what he does with repeat viewings and i will probably go back to see this one a few more times if i can afford to wow yeah, I know, right? I mean, I know how the tricks are going to yeah, end. Yeah, yeah. But even that, I mean, knowing what's going to happen, seeing what the audience does, a couple times I turned to my friend and just gasped thinking, oh my God, I mean, this the trick isn't going to go right because the audience isn't doing what they're supposed to. And that even adds an emotional resonance when you know how the trick is going to end and wondering, oh God, is something going to go wrong here? Is this going to work? And it's it's that good that I was, I'm excited to go see it a fourth time and try to catch how is this going to work out? And will he? Ha how will he have to to dance around what the audience is doing? So it is a wonderful, exciting show. I really recommend it. And if you can, try to see it a few times because you'll gain a new appreciation for the art of illusion, mentalism, and also his storytelling. All right. So that is uh, Darren Brown's secret. Uh, it is playing at the Court Theater through January 2020. 20, the beginning of January 2020. Uh, I'm going to see it uh, sometime soon, I suppose. Peter, you're going to go see it as well, right? Yeah, indeed. I'll be there. All right. And uh, when Michael gets back from Italy, we'll uh, see if he sees it and we'll talk about it again after we've seen it. And uh, w one of the things I've noted here is that Secret is produced by J.J. Abrams of Hollywood fame. 
Tommy Kale and Jeffrey Seller. Uh, Tommy, uh, I have the acclaimed director of that small show, Hamilton. Uh, What's that? It, you know, it's this little musical played down at the public, um, struggling to make its way onto Broadway. So uh, yeah, you should I hope go it see gets it. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I don't know. Is this Tommy Kale's first producing credit? I don't know, but um, I, I have to say that um, I hope he doesn't segue into producing at the risk and the uh, exclusion of directing, because mm. um, as somebody who has seen 80 to 90 percent of the Broadway musicals of the last 50 plus years, I do rank Tom Kale's direction of Hamilton among the 10 best I've ever seen. Okay, and as uh, Jenna mentioned, this show originally was uh, played at the Atlantic Theater in 2017, mm-hmm. uh, won some Drama Desk Awards. It's not going to be eligible for Drama Desk again this year, but perhaps uh, no. some of the other awards that are floating sure. around. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, the, um, the, the, the big one, the, the Theater World Award. Um, <laughs> no, we already <laughs> because he was off Broadway. We do off Broadway too. No, uh, I think the word you're looking for is Tonys. So uh, fingers uh, firmly crossed. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, next up, Jenna, you got over to uh, the Red Bull Theater. Uh, actually, the Cherryland Theater, where Red Bull Theater presented American Moor. Peter talked about it last week. What was your take on American Moor? Yeah, uh, Peter's insights were really good last week. Uh, I've been trying to think of words to describe this piece, and uh, all I can think of is, like, white theater fans need to shut up and listen to uh, Keith Hamilton Cobb's play rather than talk about it. So uh, with that said, here's basic Becky's take. Um, The play is largely a series of monologues that examine the play – Othello, the character Othello, actors who have played Othello, and how people think of Othello, given their backgrounds and their experiences. Uh, Cobb goes beyond Othello to discuss being a tall black man who wants to be a classical actor, but is restricted by white directors with a very limited vision to essentially one role. And then he's further restricted by their limited vision in his interpretation of that one role that they will allow him to play. Uh, It is a fascinating piece, especially in the wake of the rather traditional Shakespeare in the Park production of Othello last year, and then the wonderfully untraditional Much Ado About Nothing earlier this year. Uh, We can argue back and forth about how progressive Shakespeare was for his time, but the likeliest reality is that as wonderful a writer as he was, uh, Shakespeare was just as racist and xenophobic as much of American society is today. And that is reflected in his plays, uh, even if the racism and xenophobia of his time was much more culturally acceptable than it is in our time. Uh, Today's takes on those plays need to consider the inherent messages included in the text and how they resonate with modern audiences, especially modern audiences who want to be less racist and less xenophobic. Cobb's eagerness to explore Othello and understand the character as the perpetual outsider resonates very powerfully in both the script and in his performance, which is just full of tension and very well-earned rage, but also grace and beauty. He has a very powerful voice on page and stage, and he knows how to use that voice very well. His takes on Shakespeare's monologues are just beautiful. 
but hearing him discuss the characters and why they say what they say and how their words connect to his life is even more fascinating. Um, this is not officially a one-man play. I remember, Peter, you discussed that last week. Uh, Josh Tyson uh, plays the director of a production of Othello for which Cobb is auditioning and during which we hear his inner thoughts on the auditioning process, on the character, all of those monologues, most of them anyway, are his thoughts during the audition process. Tyson does some really nice work from the audience as the director trying to analyze Othello from a white perspective. And it is to his credit that with very few lines, the character does not come across as hateful or overtly racist, but clueless and unaware. He doesn't recognize his privilege. He doesn't recognize how offensive he is being but he's genuinely trying, um, and I think that's a very nice touch. Mm-hmm. Um, Kim Wield's direction uh, works beautifully with the language. Uh, she lets the tension ebb and flow as needed. It never races, but it also never drags either. Wilson Chin's set of toppled columns uh, and Alan Edwards' atmospheric lighting, they also convey the mood and the emotion really beautifully. Uh, This play is one of the more fascinating, thought-provoking pieces I've seen in quite a while. I really hope more theater fans will see it and discuss it. And I'd really like to see Mr. Cobb play lots of classic leading men soon, uh, especially after hearing his takes on various Shakespeare roles. I want to see him play all of them. He does a beautiful job as both an actor and a writer. So I I hope to see more plays that he writes and more performances from him in the future. Okay, so that is American Moore. It's playing down at the Cherry Lane through October 5th, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us iHeartRadio plays us, TuneIn plays us, Stitcher plays us, Google Play plays us, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you will find Broadway Radio's offerings. Also on the uh, show notes there, we have a link to the Patreon page to support us. That's uh, patreon.com slash Radio, and you can get more information there about the various different support levels that you can give to us. Uh, and on the show notes also, we have links to some of the things we've talked about today, uh, including all those different things about the Boston Center for the Performing Arts and the Huntington Theater Company. And uh, I also found uh, two other things, Peter. I found the Deatrice Theater uh, pictures of it uh, and their website up there. So that's great. And also Good. the Wikipedia entry about the fire department trying to burn it down. Oh, yeah? So, yeah. So I put that in the show notes as well. And uh, the thing about Sunnyside, Queens, yeah, is that Sunnyside and Long Island City are right next to each other. But it seems as though that the Sunnyside Railroad Yard is in Long Island City. So uh-huh. that might be the sign that's been used there. But regardless, they're, they're butt up <laughs> adjacent to each other. Okay. <laughs> so, Pete, Thank yeah, you. Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia question? Well, the question was, what musical that ran fewer than two weeks on Broadway had an opening number that became a Grammy-winning number one hit? Well, in 1960, Bobby Darren's rendition of Mac the Knife hit number one and won the Grammy for Best Record of the Year. That song was the opening number of the Kurt Weill, Bertolt Brecht musical, The Three Penny Opera. 
Now, most people say, what are you talking about? Two weeks. I mean, it ran forever. I mean, it was the longest running off-Broadway show until the Fantastics. Yeah, yeah, but we're talking about a Broadway opening, which actually happened on April 13th, 1933. And 12 performances later, it was gone. So... Tony Janicki was back on the beam as the number one answer man, followed by Alyssa Marr, Stephen Brown, and Brigadoon. Okay. This week's question. What smash hit musical mentions Alice Cooper, Betty Crocker, Karen Horney, Yasha Heifetz, Conrad Hilton, Carlo Ponte, Gloria Steinem, Levi Strauss, and Joanne Woodward? <laughs> All right, so if you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Janetessa Fox and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow.